We'll look at chapter 6 and 7 tonight. We're just going to stay with Job's response to Eliphaz. And so much of what he talks about is just depressing. It's just a bummer. It's like a heavy weight. And you're reading it just going, Oh man, this guy's having a bad time of it. And yet, as you walk through it, I think you'll find, as I found earlier, that it lifts your heart. That the Holy Spirit has a way, even in dealing with struggle and sorrow and hardship and pain, He has a way, if we'll turn to Him, of truly lifting our hearts. And I think you'll find that to be the case tonight. Father, we ask that You would do just that as we open Your Word, that You would lift our eyes to look to You. We pray again for the full measure of repentance, not turning from evil, not turning from sin, but turning toward You, Lord, and fixing our gaze upon Jesus as the author and the perfecter of our faith keeping our eyes focused as Paul said on the prize and the prize Lord it isn't even eternal life though that's where we're headed the prize is you you are our very great reward you are the one you are the reason that we gather and we walk forward and we hope and we pray and we have faith and Holy Spirit as we look into your word Father these are your words And so we need your Spirit to declare them to us, to explain them to us, and to give us your perfect wisdom. And we pray for this tonight as we seek you, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, you've heard the old phrase, misery loves company. And this is a miserable company of friends at this moment. When we hit verse 1 of chapter 6, we are deep in it. There they are, if you can imagine them. Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and they're sitting on the ashes of the Uth city dump. And they're sighing deeply. And they're what you could call a forlorn fellowship of fretting friends. Job is miserable because of his suffering. Job's friends are miserable because of his suffering. So they're all miserable together. And as we saw last week in chapter 3, finally Job's misery, misery just gushes out before his friends in a torrent. Oh, that I had never been born. Oh, even the night that I was conceived, if that hadn't happened at all, that would, I would be better off. He curses his origin, questions his existence. And then, of course, in chapter 4, Eliphaz responds, I think hoping to help Job see the error of his ways helping to redirect Job on his course, but he dumps Job's misery right back on top of Job with careless insensitivity. It's really quite breathtaking. How this guy doesn't even realize the pain his friend is in, or or maybe he realizes it, but can't see how he is just making it worse. Well, here's, here's the thing. All four of these guys are missing something that you and I are privileged to see. All four of these guys are missing something incredibly important that if they could see it, if they knew it, it would change their perspective. The problem is, they hadn't read chapters 1 and 2. They didn't know the background. You see, all they knew was the physical reality. And they were unaware of the spiritual truth behind this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. It means they're not going to last long. They're temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Had Job and his four, three friends looked at the unseen of the situation, they would have understood there was more to Job than meets the eye. There was more to the situation that was obvious before them. And as the debate gets underway in this company of misery, it is all about the seen rather than the unseen. It's all about what they see going on in Job's life. They spar over the temporary rather than the eternal. And that happens to us, doesn't it? Today, I spent hours sparring over the temporary. That silly computer of my mother-in-law's is going to burn. And I'll tell you, the sooner the better. The things that we strive over and stress over, we've got to get this right, we've got to get that right, we've got to make it add up in our world. And, and it's temporary stuff. It's the scene. 
But it commands so much of our attention, just as Job's physical situation commanded the attention of his friends. That's what they're all looking at. But they needed to read chapters 1 and 2. Because there, the Almighty, remember, Shaddai. The name Shaddai, used 31 times in this book. Almighty. Almighty baits Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? I know you've been walking around the earth. Have you taken a look at Job? God knows what he's doing. He knows Satan's going to bite. And of course he does. The Almighty baits, the adversary bites. That's what's happening in chapters 1 and 2. But listen, Job is not Satan's primary target. Who cares about one man? Big deal. Okay, so I can go cause problems for this guy over here. Who cares? Satan's primary target, gang, is the character of God. And what he's going after is not to make one man's life miserable, but to attempt character assassination. He is seeking to impugn the very nature of God. How do you mean? When it's all said and done, listen, the book of Job, as with Job himself, is not about Job. And it's not about Eliphaz and his friends. The book of Job is about God. It's all about God. And it's a perspective we need desperately to return to. My life is not about me. What I do, it's not for me. It is for the Lord. It is about the Lord. And what Satan's asking here as he goes after the character of God via Job, he's asking, is God worthy to be loved and worshipped for who He is? Or is it just that people like Job love and worship God because of what they get? Remember what Satan says? God, if you take away his livelihood and his kids and all the stuff that he has, you take that away, he'll curse you to your face. In other words, the only reason why Job loves you, the only reason why he worships you, God, is because of what he gets from you. Take that away, he'll curse you. Didn't work, did it? So Job says, throw some disease in there, or Satan says, throw some disease in there, and Job then will curse you. And he's going after God's nature. Is God worth loving just because He's God? Or is it just a relationship of convenience? Is my relationship with God... Ask yourself that question. Is my relationship with God a relationship of convenience? Oh Lord, I need You now. Jesus, take the wheel. Because life's hard right now. But when it's good, or when I'm busy, or when I don't really, you know, have time, when it's inconvenient, are we then still pursuing Him? What's interesting is the Lord does something in this story that Satan does not expect. Neither does Job or his three friends. God does something that bears up his credibility, but he's not doing it to bear up his credibility. What do you mean? God does something that is completely out of his nature. He does something because that's what he does. What are you talking about, Rick? He restores the friendship. As we talked about Sunday. The whole book ends with God restoring Job and his friends. And Satan could not possibly have expected that. It's it's absolutely amazing. Think about this. God restores them, but why should He? Why should Shaddai, the Almighty, care about four insignificant little men and them getting along? It's just four guys. I mean, we're in a history of billions of people here. And these four guys are squabbling over this guy's sickness. Big deal. But you know what? It is a big deal to God, and He seeks uh, resolution and restoration. Why? Because God is love. The Bible tells us that. And that's why the adversary missed it, by the way. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God. Well, Satan doesn't love. Therefore, Satan does not know God. He doesn't get how God thinks, how God works. He's expecting, you know, he's trying to pull off an epic throwdown here. Satan versus God. Which is pretty pathetic because Satan isn't even a tenth the power of God. Not a billionth the power of God. It's not even in the same category. Satan's going after God and he misses the fact that 1 John 4 8 tells us God is love. Job is sitting here in the center of his problems as the book begins. 
And if we live at the self-center of our universe, if we sit in the center of our old smoldering dung heap like Job is, love is always unexpected. Because we're so focused right here. But here's the thing. God doesn't bless us because we're blessable. God doesn't love us because we're all that lovable. He blesses us because of His nature. He loves us because He is love. Now that may seem elementary, but to me this is one of the greatest things I can tell you. It's one of the greatest pieces of news we have because whatever my circumstances, whether good or bad, I know one thing to be absolutely true, that God by His nature is love. Please understand that. No matter how awful life can get, and it can get awful, the one thing that is an absolute constant that will not change is God is characteristically, by nature, He is love. Therefore, I am always loved. Isn't that wonderful? Even when I fall, even when I sin, even when I do stupid things, and even when I'm hurting beyond hurt, I know, even when the world is against me, or it feels that way, I know God loves me. Well, how do you know that for sure? Because God is love. And this is what Satan missed. And this is what Job and his four friends, they they take 36, 37 chapters to try and figure it out. Until they finally come to the point at the end where, remember what he said on Sunday, God tells Job, he tells the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, you guys need to go and you need to bring an offering and I'm going to have my servant Job pray for you and I will heal him. As he prays for you, I'll heal him. And guess what happens? Everybody is restored because God is love. And it's not because of what these four guys did. It's because of who He is. And in that, He proves Satan wrong. And Satan loses. We need to understand that whatever purpose He may have in your suffering, in my hurt, I know that it must be eternal and perfect and compassionate and gracious because, well, He is. I may not see it in my temporary circumstance, but I can know it by faith in the eternal God is love and is working all things out in His perfect love. Now tonight, Job returns fire. We ended last week again with Eliphaz dumping the stuff right back on Job's head. Job turns around in a series of questions. Some are going to be aimed at Eliphaz and company. Others are going to be aimed at life. And finally, at the end, we're going to see him begin to question the Lord in a couple of chapters here. So that's our outline. If you want to follow that, you can jot this down. We're going to go through this tonight. Part 1, Job questions Eliphaz. Part 2, Job questions life. And part 3, Job questions the Lord. Part 1, questions for Eliphaz. Chapter 6 and verse 1. Then Job answered, Oh, that my grief were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my calamity. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore my words have been rash. Okay, he's got to be taken aback at this point. Eliphaz coming after him, I think surprised Job, shocked him a little bit. Wow, I didn't think you were going to come on so strong. I mean, can you imagine you're, you're, you're sharing with a friend why you're depressed, why you're bummed out. You lay it all out before them and what you'd like to hear from them is, Oh man, I'm so sorry. It's going to be alright. Let, let's just pray together. But instead your friend goes, well, you're the one that caused this whole thing. I mean, you messed this up. It's your fault. How would you feel? Job is, is back on his heels. And, and he, he's, it's as if he's saying, okay, um, wow, uh, okay, my, I guess my words were a bit rash. But then he says in verse 4, here's why. For the arrows of the Almighty, should I, are within me. They're poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. He's saying, I am weakened as though I were drinking poison. And I'm frightened. Don't you understand? Even if my words were rash, here's why. I'm scared to death. Look at me. And my body's falling apart. He says in verse 5, he starts to throw out some really interesting metaphors. He says in verse 5, Does the wild donkey bray over his grass? Or does the ox low or bellow over his fodder. Of course they don't. A donkey who has good fresh grass to eat isn't going to be sitting there going, oh, this is terrible. 
He's going to be eating it happily. And the ox who is sitting there over his, his fodder, over his grain, and he's, he's eating, he's going to be eating happily. He's not going to be going, oh man, this is bad, you know? <laughs> and that's what Job is saying. He's saying, look, I, I, if, if the food was good here in my life, I would be happy. I wouldn't be braying and bellowing. Of course I wouldn't be complaining if my situation were good. He goes on in verse 6 and he says, Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of the egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They're like loathsome food to me. Now, sticking with this food metaphor, what Job's saying here in this verse, he's comparing the counsel of Eliphaz to unsalted and therefore rotten food. He's comparing it to like runny egg whites. How many of you, when you go into the restaurant and you order eggs, order just the whites and make them over easy? That's kind of gross. You know, there's no taste there. You've got to salt them just to get some kind of taste out of them. And, and Job's, he's looking at Eliphaz, he's saying, look what you've just put on my plate here. You have just, here's what you've given me to eat. Rotten food and runny eggs. And not even the yolk. The yolk's on him. You can, sorry, you can put salt, you can put salt on a cut apple. And, and it can sit on the counter for a half hour, 45, an hour. And the inside of the apple remains good. Or you can cut the apple up and just leave it there and it starts to go brown and rotten. And the words of Eliphaz, rather than preserving Job, rather than bearing him up, are bruising him and hurting him. So in other words, Eliphaz, you're a bad egg. Verse 8. Yeah, I know. Oh, that my request might come to pass, he says, and that God would grant my longing. What longing is that, Job? Would that God were willing to crush me. That He would loose His hand and cut me off. said this last week. Job never, never talks suicide, but he does talk death. He never says, you know, if I could, I'd just take my life right now. He asks for it to be taken. He wishes it could be taken. He longs that God would just snuff him out and be done with it. But he never toys with the issue of suicide. It's death that he wants, but he's not going to do it himself. And here in verses 8 and 9, he he asks again. He longs that God would crush him. He requests again that God would lose his hand and cut him off. And I, I wonder, what if God had? What if God had honored Job's prayer as prayed? Okay, Job, you're done. What if God answered all of our prayers as prayed? I, I don't even remember half the things I prayed you know, last year. Do you? Unless you're journaling... Unless you're keeping track of what you've actually prayed, there are so many things we pray on the fly to God. And I shudder to think if He answered every one of our prayers. You know, you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off. Lord, would you just... And all of a sudden their car goes... (laughs) What if He answered every one of our prayers? Gang, I'll tell you what. If He did, we would miss out on His great good. I am so thankful He retranslates what I pray. That's what the Bible tells us, Romans 8.26, that the Spirit helps our weakness. You remember the verse? We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Why? What does that accomplish? Well, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As the Holy Spirit is interceding and literally retranslating our prayers, He is bringing our prayers in line with God's will. So that even what we pray, though it may be askew or messed up, by the time it reaches God's ears, the Spirit has retranslated it to fit His will. You know, the Holy Spirit knows our hearts. He knows when we're praying toward the Lord and for things about the Lord. And so He does this... Retranslate. It's, he's a great harmonizer. We were last Thursday night uh, during worship team rehearsal rehearsing the song Our God Saves. You know, that John sang the last couple of Sundays. And, and we're singing that, and it's one of those songs that, I mean, you just, you have to power. It's a power song, power ballad. And we were singing it because it's kind of high and the, the harmony's high and everything. You've got to really sing it, a full voice. So John and I are sitting there just singing full voice. And we're in the barn and playing and all of a sudden there was harmony. 
I was here in harmony that nobody was singing. John was singing the melody. I was singing a harmony part. There was a third part. But there is something that happens in music. Maybe you're not aware of this harmony-wise where when, when a harmonic tone comes right in sync with the melody, all of a sudden, sometimes it will produce another tone. As though the Lord is singing with you, which is the way I like to think of it. That's what the Holy Spirit does with our prayer. We pray in melody. The Holy Spirit comes along and begins to harmonize until there is a whole chorus in the will of God. Things coming to the Lord the way they're supposed to be as opposed to sometimes the way I pray it. Amazing. This is what Job needs. Back to Job chapter 6, verse 10. He says, But it is still my consolation that I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Oh, to be able to say that. Uh, to be in the throes of sorrow and suffering, but to be able to stand up and say, but I have not denied the Word of God. I will not deny the Word of God. I have not denied Your Word, Father, in spite of all circumstance. I know Your Word to be true. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Listen to this, holding fast the word of life. I like that. Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life. And that's Job. See, he hasn't denied the word. Yes, he's depressed. Yes, he's sorrowful. Yes, he's hurting. But he has not denied the word. And he is holding fast to the word. And there is a key, by the way, there's a key here to holding fast and to not grumbling in dire circumstance. Now, Job's holding fast to the Word, but he's, he's still grumbling. And there's a key to not grumbling when you're sorrowful, when you're hurting. It's not just holding fast to the Word. It's holding fast, listen, the Word of life. Hold fast the Word of life. Jesus says, I am the life. John 14, 6. I'm the life. It's me. You looking for life? Here I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I think about the day when those two sisters were suffering over the pain and the grief of the loss of their brother right before Jesus raised him from the dead. Lazarus. And Mary and Martha, they came out to Jesus just tears pouring down their face and in anguish over the death of their brother. Oh, if you had been here, Lord, he wouldn't have died. Oh, Lord, I, we believe in you, but this is, this is too much to bear. And Jesus says, John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's our hope. The word of life. That is our living hope, as Peter calls it. Our, our hope is not in death, as, as Job is describing. It's not in being cut off. Our hope in the worst of circumstances is in Jesus, the Word of life. And so we feed on the Word. And we cling to the Word. And we listen to the Word of life, who is not only, which is not only the Word before us sitting in your lap, but is Jesus Christ. And as we look to Jesus in those storms... We don't grumble because we see Him and we cling to Him. Verse 11. Job goes on, he says, What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or my flesh bronze? Am I that strong? He's saying to Eliphaz and his friends, Is it that my help is not within me and that my deliverance is driven from me and he turns at his friends and he really lays it out here verse 14 for the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the almighty man that's a good word that's a good word when a friend is despairing they don't need a litany of doctrine they need the mercy of the father they don't need harsh words they need the compassion of a friend It's in mercy and kindness and compassion and grace that we find our healing. Isn't that where you found healing in the Lord? Isn't that where you wanted to be with the Lord? Paul puts it very clearly. The kindness of God. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. 
the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Not the slap on the hand. Not the scripture memorization, which is important and good and healthy and helpful. But what leads you to repentance is kindness. Job said, that's what I'm looking for here, guys. Shouldn't a friend be kind to a friend? Because if, if, without the kindness, what does he say? So that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Show me the love that I know is in God. As friends, that's what we're called to. Verse 15. My brothers, now he's really getting after them. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi. What's a wadi? Well, if you go to Israel, you see them all over the place. Very common in the Middle East. It's called a wadi. It's a dry creek bed, at least in the desert time, in the summertime. In the winter, it can be a rushing torrent. Very fickle. These dry creek beds that run throughout the desert, up and down in the hills, and if you get a heavy rain, it can come rushing down in a flood. Is that sudden? That's what Job is talking about here, that throughout the desert there are these wadis. He says, my friends have acted like this. Like the torrents of wadis which vanish, which are turbid because of ice and into which the snow melts. When they become waterless, they're silent. When it's hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of the, their course wind, uh, the, the paths of their course wind along. They go up into nothing and they perish. He says, the caravans of Tamah looked, and the travelers of Sheba looked for them. They were disappointed, for they had trusted, and they came there and were confounded. So, I show up for help from my friends, and like the wadi in the desert, there's no water. They're gone. My help isn't there. I thought it was, but I'm, I'm here, and it's an empty wadi. That's what he's referring to his friends as. It's interesting, he mentions the caravans of Tema, because Eliphaz is the Temanite. So there's a direct swipe at his friend. In verse 21 he says, Indeed, you have now become such, you see a terror and are afraid. Have I said, give me something, or offer a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from the hand of the adversary, or redeem me from the hand of tyrants? Teach me, and I'll be silent, and show me how I have erred. Which Eliphaz thought he already had. But Job's saying, you know, I need truth here. Show me how I've erred. How painful, he says, are honest words. Remember Solomon says, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It hurts, but it can be good. Job says, how painful are honest words, but what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? I know my words are flighty and empty, he says. I know my words are coming from despair. But your words are as dry and dusty as a wadi. Psalm 84. I'll begin in verse 5. Psalm 84, verse 5. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. The valley of Baca, I want you to compare that to the wadi that Job is talking about. See, Job says, my friends are are dried up and empty and dusty. And they're doing me no good. The psalmist talks about a different kind of valley. The valley of Baca, where those who strengthen in the Lord, when they pass through it, They make it a spring. What does Baca mean? It means weeping. The valley of weeping. Those who find their strength in the Lord pass through the valley of weeping and it says they make it a spring. How do they make it a spring? By their tears. Those who trust in the Lord will go through this valley and they make it a spring by their tears. It's covered with a blessing and they go from strength to strength and it tells us every one of them appears before God in Zion. What the psalmist is saying is this. The weeping of those whose strength is in the Lord becomes a a spring of refreshment for those who pass by after them. For anyone who comes along after you. We've read this verse a couple of times, but I've got to go back to it because it fits so well in this book. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God of all comfort. 
who in verse 4 comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort, and this is key, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. But listen, that's not just a cop out to pain and suffering. And you may have heard it that way before. Maybe you've heard someone say when you're having a hard time, well, you're going to really be able to help someone in the same circumstance later. You go, oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for that. I know. But it's true. It's absolutely true. If your strength is in the Lord, if your trust is in Jesus, then when you go through those difficult, hard times, times of weeping, when you pass through the valley of Baca, your hardship and what you struggle through will bring tears of refreshment for somebody else will become a comfort for some. maybe even while you're in the valley someone will look at you and say you know what if Jim can have this kind of faith when he gets the call from the doctor that you got a year ago if he can have that kind of faith in a struggle like that I can walk through this I can walk through this Jesus said in John 14, 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And you can say, well, that sounds nice, Pastor, until your life lands in despair. Besides the fact, what right does Jesus have to talk about living water? Every right, because Jesus has been through the valley of Baca. The living water, Jesus paid for it with His tears. And as we pass through where Jesus has already been, we are refreshed by the tears that He wept at Calvary. By the tears that poured out of Jesus on the cross, we become refreshed through and because of His suffering. So that Jesus was able to say, John 7.37, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is not mystical teaching. It's not ethereal theology. It's what really happens to a person who walks in faith in Jesus, even in hard times, living water begins to flow through the dry wadi of my spirit because he suffered. And because of that, the Bible says, the Spirit and the Bride say, Revelation 22:17, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost, because Jesus paid for it. Well, Job compares his friends to dry wadis, and he continues now to castigate Eliphaz. He says in verse 27, You would even cast lots for the orphans. Or in other words, you'd take advantage of them. You would barter over your friend. In other words, you'd sell me out. This is how you guys feel about me. Now please look at me, Job says, and see if I lie to your face. Desist. Let there be no injustice. Even desist. My righteousness is yet in it. What is he saying? I am not wrong. I have not sinned. I am still right before God. Look at me. This is me, he's saying. I am still right. I I haven't done anything wrong. Sure, my circumstance looks like I have, but I haven't. He says in verse 30, Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern calamities? He says, If I was wrong here, you would know it because I would know it and I would tell you. But I'm not. Ever been there? I didn't do anything to deserve this. I'm not wrong. I was eight years old at Ronnie Huffman's house. And Ronnie and I were playing outside, and his older brother, who wasn't very nice, came up to me and said, Yeah, Ricky, your mom called. You're supposed to go home. Okay. And so I, I went home. Well, my mom did not call. She goes to the Huffmans to pick me up. I'm not there. And they begin driving all over Mission Viejo, California to find little Ricky. I get home and the house is locked and I'm like, well, that's weird. So I sat down on the steps and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. Like an hour later, my mom pulls up and she is frazzled. Okay? Gets out of the car. What are you doing? You're supposed to wait. And I'm like, ba I couldn't even get a word in. I get inside. I got a spanking. Yeah, laugh it up, Lydia. I got a spanking. 
for it. I'm still wounded over this one. And like a half an hour later, she finally gets a hold of Mrs. Huffman and finds out the son who told me to go home confessed under pressure. And my mom comes to me and all the time was saying, I didn't do anything wrong here. I'm innocent. Mom bought me an ice cream, but it still hurt, you know? But this is Job here. He's he's using another wordplay, by the way. He says, Is there injustice on my tongue? I would taste it. The problem with the verdict of Eliphaz on Job, as Job points out here, is it's all based not on Job's behavior. It's based on Job's circumstance. You're on a dung heap. You have sores all over your body. Your children are dead. You've lost everything you've ever worked for. You're dying in front of us. You must have done something wrong. Not necessarily. Because my circumstance isn't a testimony of how I've lived my life. Oh, granted, okay, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that doesn't mean that all suffering is the result of sin. And Job's saying, look, I'm suffering, but there's, it's without cause. Let me ask you this. Are the Haitians to blame for the earthquake? Pat Robertson is in hot water again. You know, because he draws back to a time when apparently he says they made a pact with the devil and getting freed from the French back in the early 1800s. And because they made a pact with the devil, well, look at what's happened to Haiti. Now, before you judge him too quickly... <laughs> It's a very dark place. And leadership at that time did use witchcraft, voodoo, devilish deeds to pull away. So, are you saying you agree with Pat Robertson? I'm saying some people did some bad things. But in the earthquake that just hit last week, what about all the orphans? Was it their fault? What about the Haitian believers in Christ who died in this earthquake? What about those who are there serving, missionaries, who lost their lives in this earthquake? Is this all of their fault? I return you to the words of Jesus who said in Luke 13.4, Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no! wasn't their fault. It just happened. As Jesus would say in another place, the rain, the Lord causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Everybody gets showered. Everybody gets trouble. Everybody gets heartache. Everybody gets storms. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with how you're behaving. But Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Which means that no matter what I have done, if I will turn to the Lord in my faith, not just away from my evil, but to the Lord, repent, and I will not perish. Because even my salvation is not based on what I have done, but on who I believe. Tragedy is going to befall everybody. The question is, will you turn to the Lord or away from Him when the hard times hit? And Job is saying, I have not turned away from the Lord. He's saying, I have not done anything wrong here. Part 2. Job questions life. He now turns his attention away from Eliphaz at the beginning of chapter 7. And he seems almost to be speaking to himself a little bit as he questions man's existence in two areas. He questions the meaning of life and he questions the measure of life. First the meaning of life, verse 1. Is not man forced to labor on earth? Are Are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages. So I am allotted months of vanity. What is he saying? He's saying, when is it quitting time? You know, we work and we slave and we work and we slave. When is my next coffee break? And I've shared before, there are an awful lot of people in our world who are living from one vacation to the next. And they're taking themselves through months and months of hard work to make enough money to have some kind of big vacation and yet the vacation always ends and they're back at work and it's pointless and it's meaningless. How many of you have had the kind of job possibly do right now where you're a clock watcher? i got eight hours to go. 7.59 and 30 seconds. You know, and the day is just long and it's just like tick, 
Check. <laughs> That's what Job's saying. Man, it's just it's meaningless. It's such a waste. I mean, we just all it's hard work. I, I called the Sprint Tech guy this last week. Uh, working on this new smartphone because I'm apparently not smart enough to know how to use it. And I'm, so I'm on the phone with the guy and I'm saying, I, I, I picked it up and he said, how are you doing? And I said, hey, great, how are you? His answer, I've still got three more hours. <laughs> well, I hope you don't spend them all on me. <laughs> Haven't you been there though when the end of the day is just not in sight? Job's saying, man, it just seems like we work and we slave. And, and then you get home. And then you get home, and what do you have to look forward to? Job says in the verse 3, I'm a lot of months of vanity, and nights of trouble are appointed me. I get home at the end of a long day, and it's not any better. I hope you're not like this. But he says, the night, he says, when I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing until dawn. The daily grind gives way to the nightly anxiety. Been there? Had that season where the day seemed to never end and when it finally did you got home and there was just enough time to eat and hit the sack and all night long you're tossing and turning going it's going to start over in a few hours. It's going to start over. <laughs> I've had that. Not with y'all. But I've had that in the past. That stress and that strain and that groaning. Job starts to sound like old Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 23 says, All his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. It's the drudgery of day and the restlessness of night. But remember, remember as Job says all these things, he's speaking out of pain, not out of faith. He is a man of faith. But his words are not words of faith, they are words of pain. Listen, if you find yourself thinking this way, we're going to talk about this more on Sunday, but if you find yourself thinking this way, where you are walking in drudgery, where you're questioning the meaning of it all, there's something missing. Something missing that's critical. Well, he questions the meaning of life. Are you going to tell us what it is, Rick? Not yet. He also questions the measure of life or the length of life verse 5 he says my flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt my skin hardens and runs (laughs) my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope remember that my life is but a breath my eye will not again see good he's been down a while now gang this is not one or two days of hardship. This is, it's been going on and on. And he's to the point where he's just going, I'm not, it's, it's never going to be good. It's never going to get better. I am on my way down. And why am I even still alive? But he's saying it, it, it's, it's a breath. Life itself is so short. And, and my life is miserable and short. By the way, what is a weaver's shuttle? I had to look that one up. Let me enlighten you. I learned a few things this week. When you have a weaver's loom... There are two primary types of thread on the loom. There is the weft and the warp. See, for me, shuttle and warp had to do with outer space before I read this, okay? <laughs> the weft and the warp, which are the types of fabric, and, and I, I believe it's the, the weft yarn is the straight yarn, and the warp is that which goes through the weft, okay? The shuttle, the weaver's shuttle, is a little device that shoots back and forth like this on the loom, okay? Very quickly. It's a great picture because Job says, that's life. (laughs) You're done. Bored, dead. You know? This is what he's saying. It's it's very short. It's here and it's gone. It moves erratically, hyperactively to its end. And then he says in verse 7, he says, my life is a breath. I will not again see good. He says, the eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. You're going to be looking at a corpse here in a moment, is what he's saying. When a cloud vanishes, it's gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Wrong, Job. But again, he's speaking out of despair. It's a bad place to develop doctrine, gang. He will not return again to his house, verse 10, nor will his place know him anymore. You know what I love about that? He will not again return to his house. See, I will. 
I'm going to be resurrected with Jesus, whether I die or He comes before I die and I'm called up. And I'm going to be with Him. But the day will come very quickly after that, and I won't get all into the theology, but you Bible students, you know where I'm going with this, where we return with Jesus. And He comes back to rule and reign for a thousand years. Revelation 20 is very clear about that. So we come back with Him. Guess what? I I, I can see my old house again. That would be kind of cool to see what it looks like after the tribulation. Now, I'm not going to live in my old house again because I already have dibs on Maui. But just so you know, (laughs) come back and see it. Job says he will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Not true. If you are in Jesus Christ, you're going to be resurrected. And you will return again. And Sheol will not hold you. In fact, thanks to Jesus, you won't go there at all. Because when you die, I'm getting ahead of myself for Sunday again, but I'll tell you, when you die, your spirit instantaneously with the Lord. And that is a good piece of news. He goes on and says, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Life is futile. Life is fast. Life is meaningless. Life is short-lived. That's what Job is saying. What does Paul say life is? Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me, to live is Christ. That's life. And if I'm alive, it's Christ. It's all about Jesus. That's what I'm here for. He says, and to die is gain. I love the inner conflict that Paul has in that passage of Philippians. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Oh, they're both good. (laughs) I would much rather die and go on and be with the Lord, but you know what? If I'm going to live, I'm living for Christ. I have a reason to be here. And it is Jesus Christ. And He is sure of that. And for For Paul, there's both meaning and measure in that wonderful truth. Now, life is short. But as to its meaning, it's entirely, listen to me, it's entirely up to you. I've said this to my kids. It's your life. It's your life. And you can do with it as you please. There comes a point, I'm right on the edge of it with Corey, he's 19 years old. We're looking at him going away to college this fall. Pray for that. Financial aid. Yes. Bring it on. And Corey's at that point where he's got to choose. It's his life. Now, I would love to live it for him because I could probably live it better. (laughs) Kidding. I would love to continue to, to be the answer man for him, to make decisions for him, to step out ahead of him. Go, no, no, don't do that, son. Let's, let's, let's. You know what? The truth is, it's his life. Hannah, it's your life. To do it as you choose, each one of us. If you want meaning and purpose in your life, you've got to live with eternal intentions. That is, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Or... You can live with temporary resignation, like Job, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's your choice. It's your life. What are you going to choose? Moses stood before the people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. The blessing, the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days. You see what we see in Job here is a man who is in so much pain, he's questioning all of it. He's struggling with the meaning, he's struggling with the brevity of life, and he's thinking out loud. In fact, some think at this point he's starting to get feverish. And maybe even a little delirious. And there are times where he shifts. He's talking directly to his friends. And all of a sudden he's just kind of talking poetically. And he probably is feeling the weight of all of his pain. But he begins to shift now his questions in another direction. Part 3. Job questions the Lord. Am I the sea or the sea monster, verse 12, that you set a guard over me? (laughs) Am I that important? Like people trying to get pictures of Nessie, the Loch Ness monster. And think of a head pops up, you got reporters all over the shore trying to get a picture. Is she out there, you know? Job says, Is that is that me? Am I am I that big a deal? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that my soul would choose suffocation, death, 
rather than my pains. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. Note that in verse 14. He says, You frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. Even if I try to lie down and get some shut-eye, I'm scared to death. I don't want to close my eyes, because when I do, nightmares. How tragic. This is a frightening place to be. Remember what Eliphaz said, by the way? Back in chapter 4, verse 12. He said, Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. And then a spirit, ooh, a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. I stood still. I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. And then I heard a voice. And then he goes on to share with Job what he heard in this mysterious, frightening, spooky vision. Job now is saying, wow, you frighten me with your dreams. Now he may be saying that even to Eliphaz. He brought me these visions. Eliphaz says, a terrifying spirit spoke to me. Job's having nightmares. Listen to me. The Lord does not use manipulative tactics like this to get His Word to you. And this is absolutely clear in Scripture. God does not use the fear factor. He does not use inserted disquieting thoughts or dreadful spooks or specters to produce fear and foreboding in our lives so that we'll do what He wants us to do. That's not how God works. It's not how God speaks. Now you may wonder, well, yeah, but how do we know? How do we know that Eliphaz's vision that he shared with Job, how do we know it wasn't from the Lord? Well, that's easy. Job 42, verse 7, God said, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So, Eliphaz's vision was wrong. A lie from the pit. I said Satan doesn't show up again in the book of Job. said that a couple Sundays ago. He might have. Or he might have at least sent a demonic presence to Eliphaz to frighten him to frighten Job. But it was not of the Lord. I point that out because I I want to impress this upon you. We talked a bit about this last week. But how do we know a dream or a vision or a word or a prophecy is from the Lord? How do we really know? And I told you, you've got to always test it, but you've got two great passages to go to to run a test. Someone comes to you and says, I've got a word of the Lord from the Lord for you. Here's how you test it. Two places to go. Galatians 5.22 and James chapter 3. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's the fruit of the Spirit. If the word is from the Spirit of God, you're going to feel or experience or see this fruit with it. Peace. Love. The person bringing it is going to be gentle. There is faithfulness in the Word. See, this is how you know it's from God. There's another way, and that's James chapter 3. And I'll quickly read this to you. You can turn there if you want to, but you might be reading it before you're there. James chapter 3 tells us, beginning in verse 13, James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition or strife in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. How do you know a word coming to you from somewhere is demonic? Well, it's going to be arrogant. It's going to be selfish. It's going to be striving. It's going to be bitter. All these things. That's not from the Lord. He says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I encourage you, if you're struggling over whether something is from the Lord or not, that you go to one of these two places, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, James 3, 13 to 15, and test it based on the fruit shown there. Now Job turns the full focus of his questions to the Lord. Follow this through, verse 17. He says, What is man 
that you magnify Him, and that you are concerned about Him, that you examine Him every morning and try Him every moment. Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. This is, this is amazing to me. It's awesome. Job, even at this early stage in history, asks God if he has sinned. He says, have I sinned? Have I done something wrong? And then, note what he says here. Verse 21, Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? What is Job implying here? That that's what God does. Job has enough understanding of God to say, you are the one who pardons sin. You're the one who takes away iniquity, so if I have sinned, show me so that I can give it to you and you can take it away from me. You can wash me clean. He has this this basic understanding that that is actually really impressive. He knew something of God's grace. Job's confusion is that it wasn't getting any better. He didn't seem to be getting any grace. He didn't understand why, but he knew it was there. And I believe the reason why Job stays right throughout, speaks right of God, is when he speaks of God, he speaks of a God of grace. He will later say, I know my Redeemer lives. He speaks of God as Redeemer. He knows that is the heart and the nature of God to forgive. And I like how he ends this. He says, For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. In other words, I'm going to be gone, Lord, and you're going to miss me. He's physically, emotionally, spiritually anguished. But he does something here that his friends never do. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar never talk to God. They only talk about God. They only talk about God. They declare doctrine. They throw in theology. They make judgments about Jehovah. (laughs) They talk all about Him with, you know, great eloquence. Job talks to God directly. And I think it completely freaks his friends out. Look at chapter 8. We're not going to do chapter 8, but just look at Bildad's immediate response to Job, who has now directed these questions. He's speaking directly to the Lord. Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Or in other words, how long will you be an old windbag? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Bildad can't believe that Job is talking to God so casually. How can you question the Lord? How can you talk about God that way? And in so doing, Bildad's not talking to God, he's talking about God. And you'll note this, with all three of the friends, they never talk to him. They talk to Job about God. Job talks to God throughout. I want you to consider the difference here. Job is direct with the Lord. His friends take detours. From the Lord. And Job is confident the Lord can handle his questions. His friends cringe every time he asks. Job has a relationship and his friends have a religion. And that's the difference. And you will see this in our world today. Those who talk a lot about God but have trouble talking to God have a religion and do not have a relationship. Where are you at with that? Let me be brutally honest with myself. It's easy for me to talk about God. I've done a lot of study. I could sit here for hours and talk all about God to you. I need to talk to Him. Because when I talk to Him, you know, this relationship, the horizontal talking about God is good and important. And I'm I'm blessed in the study. But personally, even for all this, my life starts to get dry if I am not talking to my Father if I'm not addressing Him one-on-one. That's what He wants of us. That's what He's invited us to. Now, Job's his relationship still needs direction. He still needs to turn toward the Lord and he's slowly turning. I mean, that's what this whole experience is for Job, a slow turning to God. But there's one last thing I want you to see before we go tonight. 
Verse 17, go back and look at this again. It, it, it caught my eye as we went by it. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Does that sound familiar to any men? Anyone there? What is man? What is man that you magnify him? Did someone else say something like that? Do you remember? David did. Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you, have, that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and honor? Now what's interesting, Job says, what is man? What is man that you magnify him or are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning? That word examine, it's pakad in the Hebrew. What is man that you pakad him every morning? That's the same word that David uses. David says, what is man that you pakad him? You care for him. Well, that's interesting. It's the same word in the Hebrew, but it's translated different depending on the circumstance. See, in Job, pakad means, what is man that you examine him? When David says it, what is man that you care for him? How can you possibly care for us so much? David is amazed and Job is dismayed. Job's in pain. David's on the hillside, kicked back with the sheep at night looking at the stars and just going, wow. They're both talking to God. But one man in his pain and his dismay and his heartbreak is saying, what is man that you pakad? Examine me. What is man that you pakad? Care for me. I point this out, and it can be translated either way, because there's a different tenor in Job's prayer and in David's prayer. The context of Job, what is man that you examine him, sounds like God is watching you. Yeah. Think you can get away with stuff? You can't. He has his eye on you. He's watching. Telling you. I had a Sunday school teacher say it. I was an elder's kid, got in trouble all the time. And I had a Sunday school teacher look at me and go, you know, God is watching you right now. Which to me was great. I'm like, he is? Do you think he liked that joke? (laughs) The heart, the attitude here, gang. Job says, God's watching me. David says, God can't keep his eyes off me. He loves me so much. He just and it's like it's like me with David in our house. And, and forgive me, but I just watched this little this little fuzzy-headed kid running all around, and he cracks. I cannot stop watching him. He's adorable. He is absolutely adorable. He is the cutest little baby I think I've ever seen in my life, present kids excluded. Absolutely adorable. I can't keep my eyes off him. What's the difference between Job and David? Listen. To Job, the relationship, though he has one with God, feels heavy-handed and examining and trying. To David, the relationship with God was one who's visiting and nurturing and caring. The difference, listen, the difference is not God. The difference is the human heart. The difference is how we, from our hearts, view God. God is unchanging. God is Always the same. And remember, we already determined as we began tonight that God is love. And so if God is always love and always perfect and always grace and you see Him as judgmental, guess what? Something's going on here. Not there. But in the heart. Not in the heavens. If I sense God differently than a God of love, the problem is in my chest. My perception is off. My view is messed up. Now it may be tainted by pain in my life. It may be tainted by my background or hurts that I have suffered. Wounds. My eyes may have scratches and make it difficult for me to really see God as a God of love. But that's who He is. I am here to declare tonight, gang, God is love. And if you see Him any other way, your perception's off. Okay? So how do I get a right view of God? If my perception is skewed, how do I get it right? I think you know the answer. You look to Jesus. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. And in John chapter 1, we're told grace 
and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You know what that says? Until Jesus came, man had trouble seeing God for who He truly was. Seeing God as the compassionate God of love. But then Jesus came and grace and truth were realized. Oh, that's God. He is loving. John writes, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Rick, how do you really know God is love? I know Jesus. I've seen Jesus. When I read about Jesus, I see love. That's how I know. And if your view is off even a slight bit, you go back to Jesus. I mean, it's as simple as opening up the Gospels. I told I shared with a, a young man on, on Sunday morning. Go home and read the Gospel of John. You need to see Jesus again. You need to just see Jesus. When your view of God gets a little off, go back to Jesus.